Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous Birthful Library. Happy listening. Postpartum body odor. It is a totally natural phenomenon because your body chemistry changes after giving birth. And so sometimes that means that what worked before is no longer effective. But I am excited to say that now there is a solution for that stubborn odor. The Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is a completely natural deodorant made by a postpartum mom who went through it herself. And it works by eliminating and preventing bacterial body odor without covering up your skin's comforting smell to your baby while giving you 12 hours of odor control. And let me tell you, it actually works. Here at the house, we've all been trying it and loving it. Now, before you think, ew, you're sharing a deodorant with your husband and daughter, let me explain that this full body deodorant comes in a convenient pump applicator that lets you apply it anywhere on your body with no bacteria traveling on the deodorant, so no ew involved. We also love that the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant has a delightful natural scent of USDA certified organic extracts that smell like a pink sugar cookie with lemon frosting. I thought this would be a little strange, but it's actually amazing. Also, the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is free from artificial fragrances and any kind of senoestrogens or herbs that can interfere with breastfeeding. Find your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant at postpartumdeodorant.com. That's postpartumdeodorant.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off through the month of May. Get your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant now at postpartumdeodorant.com and start smelling more like yourself again. Pregnancy and postpartum are some of the most nutritionally demanding times of your life, which makes sense because you're basically acting as your baby's pantry while pregnant or nursing. That's why the quality of your prenatal supplements is so vitally important. Hands down, the one I recommend is needed. So I'm thrilled to say that if you use the code BIRTHFUL at thisisneeded.com, you can get 20% off your first month of needed products. Needed is the number one nutrition brand recommended and used by me and over 4,000 practitioners from nutritionists to midwives, functional medicine doctors, and OBGYNs. Needed is for anyone trying to conceive, pregnant, postpartum, and really, this is goodness you can use even before and beyond the perinatal years. Along with prenatals, Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support to a lactation support plan, a stress and sleep support plan, and a gut health plan. In fact, I've had clients rave about Needed's pre and probiotic formula, saying how much better it made them feel compared to their usual probiotics. And to me, Needed's hydration support packets, which only have ingredients you can pronounce, are a must in any doula or hospital bag. Also, Needed's prenatal multi is available in capsules and easy-to-take vanilla powder for those with nausea or pill fatigue. 
head over to thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we'll be talking about shaking and the primal nature of birth. You may have heard that uncontrollable shaking is a very common part of labor and immediate postpartum, but is there a neurological purpose to all this shaking? And is the management of the third stage of labor truncating the resolution, downregulation, and integration of the primal birth process, basically messing with neurological completion? Leslie Everest shares her thoughts. Stay tuned. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros and new parents to inform your intuition. Hello, Mighty Parents and Parents-to-be. Thank you, as always, for all the love you give the show, your feedbacks, your requests, your ratings, your reviews, your support. If what you hear is helpful, do make sure you subscribe. It is free, and that way you're not going to miss a thing. All right, so in previous episodes, we've explored the importance of physiological birth. You know, that's definitely my jam. And we've talked in depth about rethinking the pushing stage and what physiologic pushing looks like. But birth doesn't end the moment the baby emerges. That's why I am so super excited to talk to the amazing Leslie Everest today, because it is time that we take a deep dive into what that final third stage of labor is all about, but from a primal neurological lens. So yeah, let's get to it. Welcome, Leslie. It is so wonderful to have you on the show. Hi, Adriana. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, so good. And I've known you for, oh my gosh, I can't remember. It's been it's been a hot minute. I think it's we're going like it's on been six years. Six years? Yeah, that's what it that sounds yeah. like it. Um yeah. and I can't believe I haven't had you on the show again since I had you way, way, way back at the beginning and a link on the show notes uh that episode so that people can listen. Um but I know who you are. Listeners may not. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? I you know, I'm an obscure Canadian doula. <laughs> that's who I am. You are uh, more I than that. <laughs> Yes, cool. I'm good with that. I have been uh, a doula in Montreal for about, well, over 26 years, actually. And I am a body worker. I'm currently um, getting my certification in biodynamic craniosacral uh, therapy. Uh, I'm an interspiritual minister and I'm a doula trainer. So I really like to draw from a lot of narratives from different wisdom traditions when looking at birth and teaching about how to build resilience in birth, not in any religious way, just in a narrative way. Well, and to me, that makes a lot of sense because the more I learn about birth, the more I understand and, and really believe that it is a multi-layered event of the physical, the emotional, the spirit. like it touches every single part of your cells and your beings and your reality. Um, and it's an immense transformation that affects it all. So it would make sense <laughs> that you can bring all the things into it to help you navigate it. Yeah, and people have to find their own preferred way to navigate it. And uh, I think it's so important. I think what's really popular right now 
Um, is people looking for evidence? And that's so important right now. I'm so glad that there's so much evidence-based stuff available, like through evidence-based birth and midwife thinking and all these wonderful uh, resources that help people to find, um, to, to nourish their potential for good choices for themselves in birth. So that's definitely one layer of uh, birth preparation. And there are definitely other layers. How do we prepare our nervous system for birth in all of its mystery and craziness to land on us in a way that we can navigate as safely as possible? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I do agree, right? Because evidence can only get you so far. And it's hugely important. Don't yes. get me wrong. Like I am all about yes. this podcast is inform your intuition. It's about the information, Absolutely. but then also bringing it back with the intuition, because if you just rely on one or the other, you're, you're going to be generally missing half, you know, like at a loss for a part of it. Um, we really are because birth is so mysterious. There's so much that we don't know and it shows up in every person so differently that's why when, you know, we do things like time contractions and things, that, that actually seems kind of strange to me because that assumes that everybody's body is working in the same way and has to meet the same pattern. It's just so not like that if you step back and really have a look. And that's why also I love digging deep into physiology and yeah. having that as the core tenement of how you approach birth, which is radically different from what we've been taught as we grow up right? We've been taught yes. to look at it from the outside in and observe it and time it and monitor it. But when you shift into going internally, it can be like, well, I don't even know what to do. And so I've really found that in physiology, you find those answers in that and you discover beautiful things that physiology has put into place. Yes, to make and how it, it links evolution amazing yeah and like things like you know the baby has a reflex on the back of their head so that the pubic bone hits it and it extends the head and then yep. when it is unfurls on the bottom of their feet the uterus you know pushes on the contracts onto their feet and they push away from the uterus to help get out like when you learn those things it's like oh okay there's nothing that we're gonna figure out that's better than like this has had so many eons of years to figure this out for survival right <laughs> right it's exciting we come to this you know so well nourished with uh our ancestors having been doing this for so long. And, you know, while definitely there's such a, an important role in obstetric medical care uh, and clinical care in birth, you know, to reduce a lot of the problems that our ancestors did run into. Honestly, if we're here living today, very likely it's because we are expressions of survival of the fittest and we have encoded within our bodies this birthing magnificence you know, it was for every pelvis in our maternal line that our great great grandmother had to come through that. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. So I think that's pretty amazing to think about. Mm -hmm. And I, I and and how much trust it builds in the process. I think, yeah, as well. Like if you've got this, your body can do it. Um, and so, however, we do navigate the birth, even though it's not a medical event. It's usually put in a medical environment. Yes. And I feel that we are discovering a lot of 
how to navigate that while also supporting the physiology. And also why I was so excited to talk to you today because we've, there's, I feel that there's an aspect of birth that kind of gets truncated, which is that physiology of the third stage, which has a lot of, there's a reason that things need to happen to sort of close the cycle. Um, and we're intervening with that. So that's what, a bit of what we're going to talk about and and we'll go different places but where do you want to start in exploring that let's dive in with that um i like to talk about birth as a nervous system event because when we look at it that way we can see the importance of the integrative gifts that we have available to us in the third stage and after our birth and how it is important to leverage those gifts in order to kind of feel like we're, we're complete in the birth. I feel like trauma, well, this has been said by Dr. Uh, Peter Levine, who is a, a very well-known trauma therapist, that trauma is a nervous system injury. This is when something really difficult happens um, coupled in an immobilization response. So when we're giving birth, we're definitely immobilized. Um, and if everything goes well and we have time for our bodies to downregulate and integrate, then we feel really complete. But I think if we don't, there's going to be part of us that's not feeling well integrated. And if bad things have happened to us in our birth that made us really uncomfortable, that can actually deepen the trauma if we don't follow the physiologic cues. Right. And these are things that will happen um, even regardless of the birth you have, like if you have a beautiful birth um, or a flowing birth with no interventions and everything's going smooth, even in under those circumstances, because birth is such a big body event that there's like a yes. baby going through your pelvis is still kind of, you know, but not mentally traumatic, but like physically in the, the definition it's of trauma. Yeah. yeah. So, so you still need to downregulate and integrate, no matter totally. the birth. Totally. I mean, we do it in sex as well, right? It's really fascinating to me how, as above, so below. So honoring all of the wonderful, beautiful, different ways there are to get pregnant these days. If we kind of break it down into the basic, natural thing, sort of the same arc of experience that it might take to create a new life it's the same sort of arc of experience that helps to get the baby out when we're looking at the rise of oxytocin and the shifts in behavior and then the need for a bonding process afterwards so i really like to use those two events and sort of overlay them on each other to just See how we are missing out on the birth part if we don't leverage that downregulation period. Mm. So let's talk about the sex part because that's something that you know most people are familiar with. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? Some people who have given birth never have had that. You know, have had sexual experiences. We can have asexual folks who get pregnant. Uh, so this is like really just breaking it down to the very basics. So I don't want to feel I'm leaving anybody out. Also, I'm, I'm kind of careful when we talk about 
sex in relation to birth because I know for some people that could be um, traumatic. Some people have a hard time coupling those things together. So I'm saying this with awareness. Um, but if we just kind of look at the basic sexual experience and the basic experience of birth, we can see um, we can see how it relates. So I'm going to just kind of put it in a purely physiological way. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so if we kind of look at the stages of labor, we have, you know, the latent phase, we have the active phase, we have the birthing phase, and then we have um, the, the third stage afterwards. When we look at a sexual experience, we have the arousal stage. Um, if I'm just referring to Masters and Johnson's super basic and very super limited sexual response chart, that's what I'm going to use today. If we look at their response, sexual response chart, we have arousal, which I feel can be sort of overlaid upon the latent part of labor. Then we have the plateau phase, which is when we're really going for it, right? So this would be more like active labor. And then the orgasm, if you will, would be the birthing part of labor. And then the third stage of labor, we could look at that overlaid with the resolution period and even longer after birth. So when we look at this, we can see how the body and the oxytocin sort of work in the same way. So obviously birth is much bigger and, and more intense and the sensations are generally very different. I'm just kind of speaking about the arc of experience. So when um, our oxytocin is rising, um, especially at the beginning of a sexual experience or at the beginning of birth, what we start to notice is that people are still aware. They're more embodied. They're feeling things happening in their body. And that sensation is getting stronger and stronger. But they're still sort of able to make grocery lists in their head. <laughs> or they're still, you know, talking to us about what is happening with the contractions. They're sort of analyzing it. They're still maybe looking at times of contractions and um, telling us what contractions are feeling like and, and um, feeding things back to us. But when we move into the active phase of labor or the plateau phase of the sexual experience, this is where we really see that deep brainwave shift that goes, uh, it goes really, really deep. And this is kind of where all of the beautiful intuitive stuff starts to happen. This is where on a deeply body level, people start to adapt positions that help the experience further itself. Um, they start to ask for things that are going to help with the experience. So in birth, we, we look for people to help bond with us. The oxytocin that is releasing into the body at a really high rate right now in the, both of these experiences is generally creating a deep sense of trust and a desire to connect with the people that we are with. And the more we are met in a respectful and loved way, the higher the oxytocin can go to facilitate an end to this experience. Um, also in birth, at the same time, we are completely besotted by endorphins, which can make us really, really high and really deep in the experience. We've all seen our birthing clients say really sweet, interesting, high things <laughs> when they're in labor. And 
Also, in the, at this point in birth and in sex, we tend to be really uninhibited, which in birth, I feel, is an incredibly protective kind of gift. Because, you know, when we talk about the possibility of pooping <laughs> to a pregnant person, it's, it's kind of horrific to think about that. But when we are kind of full of oxytocin and endorphins, our inhibitions tend to go away. So I usually know that somebody is in really active labor. When as before, I might have seen them in more latent labor, kind of say you needed to use the washroom, they would tiptoe into the bathroom and they would close the door and turn on the light, maybe lock the door. They would use the washroom and you would hear the water running. They would be washing their hands thoroughly. They'd open the door, turn off the light and walk out. Someone in really active labor will tend to just open the door, not turn on the light, sit on the toilet. They don't care who's around and walk out of the room without really washing their hands. <laughs> so that's a really good sign that things are, are cooking and moving towards birth, uh, hopefully an exorable conclusion. Yeah, they have like a very, it, the focus narrows of what your, you know, your visual and your auditory and everything narrows into what's at hand and you go really deep into, yeah, it's not that you don't know what's going on around you, but you choose to like, I'm, I'm, I got to get down to business and this is the business I got to get down to. This and is the business. This is the yes. business. Um, and let, it doesn't really care if my butt is hanging out. That's not important. That's other now. people's problems. Yeah. yeah. Let's, yeah. let's take a quick break. Um, when we come back, we'll continue with this analogy. We'll be right back. And we are back talking with Leslie Everest about the oh, the beautiful nervous system event that is birth. Um, and so, yeah, so we were right in the business of <laughs> of getting down to it I and not caring if your butt's out. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Not not really caring, because like you said so beautifully, the, the focus is just really narrowed. So we don't care as much about being seen. And also we're very trusting um and it's really important just to pause there because when we are altered in states like this when we are seeking to bond when we are naked and vulnerable and uninhibited this is incredibly important for birth to to go in a really good way because it means our hormones are working well we can also see how birth can be right for trauma when that really open space is violated with behavior that is not in alignment with that openness mm. so you can come back to that a little bit but what makes us fierce and awesome in labor also does make us more vulnerable to the experience of trauma so that is why I do talk to so many care providers. Again, I have the privilege of lecturing to care providers about how to be in a, in, impeccable in a birthing space, how not to say the things or do the touches or violate the consent that could potentially create a deeply traumatic experience for somebody. I think birthing folks, um, you know, when people are talking about their experience, there's a lot of judgment. It's like, well, you had a healthy baby and everything went well and other people in the world are dying in childbirth. So we're kind of really lucky to have had that experience. Um, yes, but also our experiences are our experiences and they're really valid. And it's quite amazing to unpack how many people have experienced trauma 
in the birthing process. So just to kind of put illuminate that while we're going through the process, because it's something I, I never want to forget to say. Mm. I want, but, and, and, and how important it is for your the people you choose to have around you and the care providers that are with you. Right? So important to, to yeah. sort of know. And this is why the, the evidence-based stuff becomes important is because those choices that you can make and discuss with your care provider before you go into this space is this is where the other people in the room can pick up where your your hopes and dreams are and begin to advocate for you when you are too open and in the zone to do it for yourself. Mm-hmm. All right, so back to a normal, wonderfully unfolding physiologic birth. So once that baby, once we're going into second stage, uh, I love how Wapio describes latent second stage, about how a baby is sort of in the breakers. There is this really lovely time between full dilation and actual expulsion of the baby where we're kind of waiting for the baby to get really low in the pelvis, the two or something like that, and then rotate on the pelvic floor so that the head begins to extend. That is really what she uh, characterizes as the, the the second part of the second stage of labor, like the when the body begins to push. It's not even you who are doing it. It's the body and the baby <laughs> are pushing up. So this is kind of what would be the, the climax of the birth experience and also the sexual experience. Very often we hear a lot of noises going on and that are uncontrollable and the body is sort of heaving to achieve the end of this experience. And so I've always found it really interesting. And Adriana, as a doula, you probably have seen this. Um, When a baby emerges, not everybody does this, but how often do you hear that really high-pitched cry at the end when a baby comes through the pelvis, comes through the vaginal opening? Do you hear that a lot? Oh, yeah. The, as the head is emerging, you get this. <laughs> yeah, it's that high, high-pitched shriek. And I've often wondered about that on a physiologic and evolutionary level. Why do we do that? Well, I mean, very often when people are having an orgasm at the end of the sexual experience, there are these great cries that happen. And so it's releases of tension, for one, with all of the sensation that's going on in the body. Our nervous system needs a way to sort of release some of that energy for some people. Um, Also, interestingly, that high-pitched cry, I think maybe, again, I don't know if there's any evidence about this, but possibly it's like when a kettle reaches the highest level of heat, starts to boil, it releases this high-pitched sound from its top opening. And I'm wondering if birth givers do that so that they're sort of keeping their energy up higher and maybe not pushing into their bottoms as much, which might potentially be helping to prevent, you know, a bad carrying experience. But my favorite thought, because I thought about this a lot at night, it's just this really curious thing for me. You know, birthing folks are really vulnerable. And not so long ago, we were birthing, you know, under the stars and not in hospitals. So when we're giving birth, we are immobilized. Like 
you don't often see people just kind of walking their baby out and then continuing walking. I mean, I'm sure it happens, but usually we have to kind of get down and do the task. And there's also blood in birth, right? And vulnerable birth giver, vulnerable baby. So I kind of think that that high-pitched perineal cry that happens at the end, because it's often really loud, maybe it's alerting predators not to come close to the birthing space. I like to think that that's maybe one of the evolutionary reasons why we let out that cry, just because everything is so interconnected when we think about it. So I love that cry. It makes me think that this is a person in their fullest, wildest birth-giving power announcing that they are here they're birthing and don't mess with me Mm. (laughs) so I love that well and I appreciate that a lot of these things that you are looking at and that I'm looking at is we see something happen often enough that doesn't have quote-unquote an explanation but when you see all sorts of people from all sorts of life under the same circumstances doing the same thing then mm-hmm. you have to start to ask, like, wh- what's the reason behind this, right? Because on a, that biological level, our bodies tend to be economical. They don't like to yes. do something just for doing it. They, you know, there's, nope. there tends to be a reason for it. So when you see often, and I got to say, it was it just reminded me of a birth I had last year. And we were, yeah, I was in one room with my client. And, you know, we're, we're, she's getting there she's in active labor but early right so still thinking brain still wondering things and we can hear somebody in the next room and Mm -hmm. you know there's loud sounds coming but but they're coming not in a constant way they're coming in waves which yeah to me is like okay they're matched with the waves and this is the way there's a coping mechanism in there and it's being purposeful for the person giving birth but my client yeah. was like oh my gosh i hope she's okay you know mm-hmm. um because we don't usually hear these sounds otherwise <laughs> in, in right the, I, those they, they kind of scare us which is probably what they do to the bear too um i hope so, <laughs> I hope so right <laughs> and then she was going and then Suddenly there was like the lot, like you're saying, the shriek, the loud will. And I said that she just gave birth and I was in the other room. Yeah. Right. But I could hear it because once you identify the pattern, once you're familiar with it, you know what happened. She's like, she did. And then we heard the baby. And yeah. Yeah, I, it's a, it's awesome. And people feel kind of re, reassured. And I'm saying is, I, I will say because I'm in that situation, too. And my clients in the hospital suddenly get scared because they think, Am I going to be in so much pain that I'm going to be shrieking like that? Mm-hmm. And trying to provide a safer context for that because out of context, it could be really scary. But even just hearing somebody have wild orgasmic sex, right? That could be scary for somebody for whom that experience is not familiar. That right. could sound painful for some people as well. So context is kind of everything. Sort of makes sense once they get in it and it happens to them. They're like, oh, okay, it's a great big cry of power. Um, I had a client once who was doing her master's degree in in um, music therapy. And we were talking about this high-pitched sound that people make at the end of the birth. And she, she gave me a really interesting bit of information. She said that that crazy wild sound resonates in the pituitary gland 
and releases more oxytocin and more endorphins when it is that wild high-pitched sound because it resonates in that top chamber of the, the cranium. And then thinking about what Wapio says, that sound of it's resonating in there might also be resonating with the pineal gland and supporting it and spraying out all that DMT, which is what catapults birth givers at the end of the, the, the birth, like right when the baby is birthing into that delta brainwave where we are just having this incredible out-of-body experience. We are ecstatic, right? Which means outside of, outside of the body. So um, we see this also in the orgasmic response in a sexual experience. Um, in, in, in French, they actually call orgasm le petit mort, which means the little death, because we lose ourselves so much. We're swept up in the sensation, and the nervous system shows evidence of that with tightening and head throwing back and all that. We see that also in birth, even though obviously the sensations are usually different <laughs> when you're giving birth. It's more intense. And a lot of people characterize that as, as quite a painful sensation. But we do see, you know, very often head thrown back and uh, the body tense. And, uh, and as the baby emerges, just that, that little death, it's almost like ego dies to itself for just a little moment and then emerges again um, integrated as a parent. And so that takes a profound physiologic and nervous system shift to integrate the immensity and the intensity of that experience. And so this is sort of what brings us to the third stage of labor or the resolution period or afterglow. Mm -hmm. right? Before we go to the afterglow, because I don't want to stop you then. <laughs> let's, yeah. yeah, let's take a break. And um, then we'll okay. be right back with that afterglow. We'll be right back. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You've taken gorgeous photos of your baby or your kids, and then when you want to share them, it is a pain either trying to find the photos or figuring out the group text that they should go to, and then also remembering that, say, Aunt Helen only does email, so you need to send her image separately. Or like in my case, where my husband is a photographer who takes magnificent photos that I rarely actually get to see because they live on his phone or end up scattered in text messages that I can't easily find. Enter the Family Album app, which was created to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with your loved ones. Basically, it's a personal space for your family's memories without third-party ads or unwanted eyes and with a bunch of fabulous features. It automatically sorts photos and videos by month, allowing you to swipe back in time and easily see how your child has grown. And you can also order eight photo prints every month to be delivered to your home. The Family Album app also has unlimited storage. Plus, it's totally free. Yup, no more worrying about running out of space or being bombarded by third-party ads. So, to all the parents out there still trying to use other messaging apps for your kids' photos, 
Level up your family photo game for free and securely with the Family Album photo sharing app. Head over to the App Store today, search Family Album, all in one word, and download the app to start creating your shared photo legacy. Diaper rash. It can be a truly uncomfortable experience for a baby. And so I find that one of the biggest conundrums when diapering is figuring out what diaper cream to use. So many options are thick and goopy, making them hard to apply and hard to wipe off. But I can personally say that this is not the case for Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant that is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, designed as a breathable formula to help maintain an optimal skin barrier while allowing the healing to occur. This butt balm was developed by a mom who is also a doctor, hence the name Dr. Mom Butt Balm, when she couldn't find any traditional products that work for her baby's persistent diaper rash and she wasn't about to settle. So she created Dr. Mom Butt Balm to go on smooth and be easy to remove while also being gentle on your baby's delicate skin. With Dr. Mom Butt Balm, you can say goodbye to excessive wiping to clean your little one's already chafed skin. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is so soft and goes on so smooth that you'll only need a small amount instead of having to layer on a thick goop. Plus, it has a lovely minty scent. Learn more about Dr. Mom Butt Balm at drmombuttbalm.com. That's drmombuttbalm.com or look for it at Amazon.com. And we are back. Um, and so, yeah, baby just was born. And yes. there was this great full-body event that happened in the birthing person that might have activated their pituitary, pituitary gland and their pineal gland with all the hormones flowing and equating it to petit uh, mort, the little death of, uh, of how orgasms are called in France and, or in the French language. And emerging as a, I love how you said the ego dies and then it emerges again as a parent like that is profound um so then it's time for resolution what usually yeah. what what needs to happen at, at I a love body that level question. that's the most important question what needs to happen just like when somebody is birthing and the baby is emerging and they are making that sound or if they happen to be making that sound I don't want to say that people who don't make that sound are doing it incorrectly some people don't I just find it is a tendency among birthing folks um what we need to happen when we are birthing is to have the space to make that sound because it's powerful and important and I just saw this happen in a hospital uh, um because I, I, you know, I, I work with some really amazing care providers who don't disturb the process. And this first time woman was birthing her baby. And she's a new mom. She was a birthing mama. And she, uh, as soon as the baby hit that place, she just started shrieking her baby out. And it was a very quick second stage because she wasn't actively being told to push before that baby had rotated. And she shrieked her baby out. And I could see 
the nurse wanting to come in and control that because, you know, fair enough, the nurse probably thought she was suffering and, and needed to be controlled and tried to guide her to push. And the doctor just put her hand up to the nurse as a signal to, of, to let her be. And so she just shrieked her baby out in the most powerful way. It was the kind of power in which all of the hairs are rising up at the back of your neck. So what we don't need at that time is to be told to be quiet and to close our mouths and to push and direct all of that energy into the bottom. Unless, of course, there is some clinical reason for that to happen. So I think just allowing the expression of our fullest power in our unique way is important and to not assume that somebody is making that sound because they're terrified or need to be controlled. So that would be for the birth. And then when we come to the resolution, what often happens in a hospital birth is that the positionality of the birth giver is usually such that their baby needs to be handed to them immediately because there's kind of nowhere else for the baby to go. Very often the hospital bed is broken and the birth giver's bottom is right at the edge. Broken so, on purpose, not that the bed is right. Yeah, yeah, they, exactly. yeah, they take it's it apart. Yeah. On purpose. They take it, thank you. They, they break the bottom of it um, so that the care provider can stand or sit there and have full access to the bottom so they can do their baby catching maneuvering. And because... The birthing parent is the niche and the safety for the baby. There's this very sort of quick impetus to, here, take your baby. Oh, here's your baby. Here, take, open your arms, grab your baby. And to very prematurely pull people out of that deep delta brainwave shift, which is very important to the nervous system completion of birth, right? So I have the thought that this tossing a baby onto a birth giver immediately, because there's nowhere really else for it to go, but also because there is this, we have to get the baby skin to skin right away because it's the best. Well, it's and also to dry not- baby off. Baby's, baby's going to yeah. get cold. Baby's going to get cold. After, but- after. Yeah. 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 This is not physiologic birth by any stretch of the imagination. I watch this and it's it's a bit scary how quick this happens and how it is assumed that the birth giving parent is in the state of mind to even reach down and grab their baby or to even be ready to have their baby on them. Because if you have witnessed physiologic birth, birth giver directed birth, we often see that there is this period of return that happens on the deepest nervous system level. Um, Wapio talks about it in a very important spiritual way. And on a nervous system way, we have to understand that that is really important as well, that there has to be this return. Otherwise, the experience not be integrated that well. So even though birth I don't want to say that birth is traumatic. It is an immobilization and high stress event. So it is really a big deal. And part of that um, petit mort that's happening, there might be a little dissociation. 
happening in that on a psychological level. But that's cool. That's a protective thing. It's like hopefully dissociating into beautiful, a beautiful place, right? Where we have the ego death and we're sort of downloading all of the beautiful information about parenting this child before we our egos emerge back as parents. So what needs to happen is everybody needs to slow down. There is a natural pause that occurs between giving birth and claiming our parenthood. And if this is not honored and it is too rushed and we take somebody out of that nervous system completion prematurely, then I think we risk people walking around after their birth feeling really unintegrated and very jangly. I feel like new parents today, and I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm in the second, well into the second generation of my work, and I am noticing how jangly a lot of new parents are. I'm wondering, and this is a stretch, but it is still a thought of mine that maybe part of that is because we've not integrated it enough on a nervous system level, and part of trauma is. A nervous system injury, not completing a process means that, you know, you've disabled it too quickly. I don't want to say necessarily that it's injured, but it was diffused too quickly. So it's just like after the sexual experience, this resolution period is in place for there to be a period of quiet, of coming back down, of tissue healing. There's actually tissue healing that happens at a high rate in this place. And a really big opportunity for bonding after such an, immediate, an intimate event as a sexual experience. So same with giving birth. We need to give the parents, and if they have other parents uh, or partners around them, um, the ability to claim and welcome their baby in their own space. I think this is really good for everybody. I think the fear is that everybody is going to bleed and there's all these protocols in place. But what if in all of this fear of getting it done quickly, we're actually violating the normal high of oxytocin and contributing to the bleeding? That's mm. a thought that I've had. So on a nervous system level, it's not just that. We need to protect the physiology of third stage in a really big way because this is the most vulnerable stage for the birth giver. And in medicine, we tend to ply it with all kinds of medications and quickness and efficiency. Um, but is that working? I mean, we can medicate it and we can stop it, but is it maybe, you know, not preventing the issue is what I'm, I'm concerned about. It's a question that I have anyway. Mm -hmm. So, well, yeah. And, yeah, and I think it's really important, this thought of, letting the birthing person claim their baby because that is something we do see um, often and again back to a pattern when people are having completely undisturbed births and I, I tend to say as doulas we have an immense luxury which is that yes. we go see birth anywhere any place with such all sorts yeah such a privilege like you yeah. know at homes, at hospitals, cesareans, birth centers, with all types of providers, with all types of nurses, like we get a very varied <laughs> exposure to birth. What a gift. 
It's an enormous And we don't have to be clinically responsible. We have the privilege of being able to sit back and observe. Yes, of not, it is not our, we're not the ones that have to be paying attention if there's too much blood. Exactly. So we can sit around here and criticize. (laughs) You know, that's that's sort of what we're doing is because we are just observing. But this is in no way wanting to take away from the magnificent work and stuff that our our beloved care providers are doing. No, absolutely. And I think it's, I mean, they have, the medicine has made birth way safer than it's ever been. Agreed. But then there's also the other part of maybe doing too much by not considering all the other things that need to happen and i think what our conversation here is to bring into awareness of hey we've forgotten or not paid attention let's observe this as well and how these two things interact and is there a middle ground if yeah, you will exactly yeah um, exactly but when we see people get birth unassisted or in the wild or you know through videos or there's i'm gonna link on the show notes there's a beautiful film called these are my hours oh my favorite my favorite every time i watch it i send uh emily who is the beautiful mom who's giving birth uh, just a little thank you note because it touches so many people this is hands down the very best birthing video i've ever seen in my life so beautiful. Mm, and it was done with all intentionality. And she, the Emily wanted to have an unassisted like home birth experience. So there was a midwife there present. But the midwife was kind of like what Michelle O'Dont proposes as the birth as the best birth environment. She was in the corner knitting, right? Paying attention, yeah, but think- not hovering. <laughs> there yeah. if needed. Her mom, her mom was in the corner knitting and the yeah. midwife was just you know, oh, that, right, that was her mom. Yeah. Yeah, sitting around, like, just waiting. And also, it was her intention for her, just her and her partner to do it. So that was wonderful. My my fourth birth was very much like that as well. Mm. That is the kind of intentional birth that I wanted. I had a midwife. I loved my midwife. But she was there with all of her experience that I could trust to intervene if she thought there was a problem. But otherwise, it was just my partner and me and my my doulas who supported and that that was it so beautiful and that was it's really powerful to have that kind of experience and in Emily's case to share that experience with everybody so that we can see how birth can be and that was not an easy birth no that that was you know you could see the molding of the baby's head that was not an easy birth and you can see her struggle throughout like it's labor it's not vacation no. very clear right um but i really appreciated how undisturbed that third stage was or after the baby was born to let things unfold on her own terms and people were there if needed but you know once she gave birth that baby she you see guides her baby to the ground she's kneeling you know she's not quite kneeling but she's like on the ground and and she gives birth and guides her baby to the ground and it is minutes before she picks her baby up minutes minutes Minutes. underline yeah and and dad's there watching and crying and he's having all his emotional amazing response but mom's oh my god like, i cried just thinking about it. <laughs> so isn't it beautiful um it, it's called these are my hours people and 
Yeah, it, it was. It, it, well, I guess what we're, I'm trying to say about the, letting you claim your baby is this woman, you know, the only hands that touched her baby were her own. Baby was set down. And then she took the minutes she needed to go whew, and decompress and come back and integrate and shake and all the experiences that she was having. And then when she was ready, she looked and baby was fine. Baby gave cries. Oh, yeah, that baby was crying. Pinked up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, into blankets, you know, and, and surrounded by the warmth of, of his mom or her I, I don't remember the baby, but of their mom. <laughs> and she followed her needs. That's what I really loved about watching Emily. It wasn't an assumption that she she was going to take the baby wrapped in a little blanket on top of her skin to skin right away. It was, I've had my minutes of return. I'm, I've curled myself around my baby. Nobody has claimed a baby harder right now than I have. And now I just want a minute to take some cramp work and some travel or whatever, because I'm having some after pains and, you know, uh, yeah, now I want her. So it was so birth giver directed and there's so many expressions of that. And I think it's really important that we do that. So I'll kind of bring us now into the, the shaking phase, which is kind of what we talked about. Let me know if you need a break at any time. Before we go into that. But, oh, no, we, we've taken our breaks. We are good. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. So let's, let's say uh, all of the things that need to happen for a physiologic third stage are happening. The baby arrives and nobody is yelling, take your baby. Um, I can't tell you how many people I've seen have their baby flopped on them, look scared. Like, and then feel guilt after because they didn't didn't feel what they thought they should feel. I felt that with my first child uh, and I had a a home birth. That that baby was plopped onto my chest right away. And my first thought was, I'm scared because I'd had a long, hard delivery. She was a a face-up baby and it was long and hard. And I think my nervous system needed a minute. And I quickly integrated it, but I'll never forget how kind of I like the violins weren't playing in that moment. The angels weren't singing. And I thought that that was something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't. I just needed a minute. And so if we can follow the directives of the birth giver, I think we're, we're going to support them a lot better. So, uh, you know, sometimes we can't help it if the baby is, the, the, the bed is intentionally broken in a hospital. Sometimes that's the way it goes. I have a friend who's an obstetrician. He said, more and more what I do because of what you've talked about is the baby comes and I just silently hold the baby close to the birth giver's thigh. You just hold it there until they reach out. So it keeps the baby sort of warm near the thigh, but then they like is just sort of respecting until the time that it's there because obviously it can't be on the floor or anything. So somebody needs to do something with it, but it's just, takes silent breath until the baby is taken by the birth giver and he has noticed a a profound difference in Mm -hmm. how that is so that's really cool um so like if it is in a super medical situation that that is an idea but let's say we are just having a a parent directed birth and it's 
undisturbed and it's the way they want, what you will see is that the parent will usually not pick up the baby right away. It's going to be this moment. Some do. And that's perfectly fine if that is your directive. If that's directed by you and you automatically pick your baby up and put it to the breast right away because that is your imperative, that is perfect. But a lot of parents need more time. So you give birth and the baby needs a moment too, very often. And both of you right now are in this sort of deep brainwave state, the birth giver and the baby. And so the birth giver needs time. So what I do when I'm at a birth is I just hold silence. I hold my own silence and I deeply hold the space. And I really trust that they are going to find their way to claim their baby. And they do. It's often like their heads are thrown back and they're off in the ethers doing whatever spiritual thing they're doing waiting for ego to join up with ego of the baby and then reintegrate back into the parent. And what you will see is that there's often some quick breaths that are taken in and very slowly the birth giver sort of notices baby or looks down and with their dominant hand, they tend to touch one side of the baby and then their non-dominant hand, the other side. And then in their time, in their way, they pick up their own baby. And the baby is often held against the chest where they can hear their parent's heart drum. Because all of us have come into consciousness to the sound of our gestational parent's heart. And so that sound is missing for the baby once they come out. And I feel like bringing that baby finally to the, the chest of the birth giver is like that moment of bringing back the drum. And that's what kind of keeps them regulated is calmly being taken to the body of the parent. So what happens now for the parent is they're sort of back consciously. They're, they've come back from Delta brainwave. They're maybe now more in, in alpha brainwave embodied and overwhelmed from the experience if we just give them the space, what will often happen within the first hour or so, this is the coolest thing, they will often start to shake. They sometimes shake really, really hard. And I feel like this shaking is the signal that this whole crazy wild birth experience is integrating. And not everybody needs to shake, but I feel it's very, very common. Interestingly, I just went to the birth of somebody who's very well versed in trauma therapy. And their first birth had been um, traumatic for them. And their baby had been propped on them and they didn't feel integrated and they weren't sure why. So when I was with them for their second baby, the baby came and they sort of claimed the baby, held the baby for a minute. And then their body started shaking. And they looked at me and said, am I okay? And I said, now you're integrating. And because of their trauma therapy background, their eyes went really big. And went, oh, and they put their baby down for a minute and started shaking wildly. And the midwife was really keen to it. The midwife was like, yeah, you go, you do this. This is awesome. And so what they felt like they did is they shook for both of those births. 
it felt like there was a wave of one and then a wave of integrating the first birth that had not gotten integrated happened at that time. So that shaking is important. Very often in a hospital birth, we go, oh, you're cold. And we try to warm that. But actually, we need to let people shake because that is how the nervous system downregulates and integrates that experience. When you see somebody getting over a trauma um, and they're processing trauma, one of the things the body often does is show relief through twitching and shaking in the body. And then after that happens and a piece of the experience has been integrated, you'll see like a sigh and a deep breath and there will be a flush on the cheeks and maybe some tears. This is what we will also see in the birth giver. And I think that it's really important. And I have heard some stories of some delayed shaking well and i was gonna share i think i've shared it with you before which i had and i want to say that like you hearing you talk about shaking this is not the first time i've heard you talk about this but when i first heard you it was such a big aha moment of like oh my gosh again why do we see this pattern over and over again there has to be a purpose and it was so great to you know, have a hypothesis of a purpose for this shaking that makes total Mm -hmm. sense biologically. Um, And constantly I hear people say that, like when they shake, am I okay? Am I okay? Is this, is this, and, and sometimes people shake during labor. Yeah. You know, if it's a really hard birth or not, if however they're experiencing it, that shake might need to come ahead of time. Um, and but it so often comes after the baby is born. Yeah, it comes both times. It yeah. comes both times because on a nervous system level, a contraction is a massive push into uh, nervous system, it like activation with the sympathetic nervous system with all the pain and contracting. You're like, Ooh! and as that stops and you kind of plummet into a parasympathetic situation. You're going to see some shaking and maybe some barfing. It's just like when, Mm -hmm. you know, you see people who get into a drunken bar fight, they go and they fight and it's all this adrenaline and they often go and they shake after and throw up. They're not throwing up because they're drunk. It's because of the adrenaline probably coming down. I remember a father telling me about this. I thought that was a great analogy. It's like, yeah, that's true. We see that in birth too. Yeah. And like that vagus nervous activating to get things out. And it brings a whole different meaning to the phrase, shake it off. Like where did that, that phrase came from somewhere, right? We've known this with how the the value of shaking it off to our nervous system. But yeah, in terms of, of a delay, like if you have a birth that, you know, baby comes out and it, for whatever reasons, that third stage in this process of integration is interfered with where it's not allowed to have the restitution and completion for bonding. Um, that was the case for me. I had my baby like put on my chest and I went through all the feelings of like, whoa, I'm not ready, but then I felt guilty and da da da. Mm-hmm. And it was several years later, I was mm-hmm. during my donut training. And one of the exercises that we were doing is doing a, a role play of the birthing person and the doula and the partner and ways of working together. And for that role play, I chose to be the birthing person. And so I was supposed to be in active labor doing contractions. And it was more than a 
than a representation and sim- simulacrum. It was like my body took over and I was having these I was really embodying those contractions that I got sweaty yeah. and flushed and I was shaking. Yes. You know, and afterwards I was like, whoa, what just happened? And was totally lost, having no explanation for it. Um, kind of like, I hope nobody saw that, you know, <laughs> like, oh my God. But no, I, me. yeah, yeah. But I felt something happened. And it was what you're yeah. talking about the ability of just because you missed it right away doesn't mean that you can't, in ways, recreate it later. Just like, I'm going to link in the show notes to an episode with Karen Strange, and it's on the baby's birth experience. And it talks about that same thing. You can recreate that initial bonding experience once you are Absolutely. Home. Absolutely. Yeah. We are so embedded with resilience as human beings that we don't have to be afraid that if it didn't go according to a blueprint, that we're inherently messed up for the rest of our lives for birth giver and for baby that's not true we're very very resilient and so many of these things can be recreated because i'm studying biodynamic creating sacral therapy it's all about this we go into birth patterns there's this really cool exercise in class where we were exercising or pushing off the uterus uh just to see how that was in our systems and how people were like, oh, I never felt that part of my leg before. Wow. And I just kind of came back online. There's so many ways to recreate it. And I do see, you know, when I'm working with people, when I touch into their nervous system and an experience arises for them, this sort of shaking release that happens sometimes. There can be these tremors, but we give it lots of space so that it's not re-traumatizing. We never want to make someone necessarily fully cathart something it sounds like you went into deep catharsis and that was really really good for you so but there there was a healing in that what happened so that's super super cool i when i'm working with people we're intentionally doing stuff i put a lot of space around it so that it's not like re-traumatizing for them um yeah no and that was it i mean it was it, it it worked out but i only understood what had happened that time when I, when you came, you know, this year or last year when you came to Rochester and, uh, and there were a couple of people who shared some shaking stories also mm-hmm. about how it was late, you know, it happened later for them, um, much later, not just within the first hour because there were things that happened, but it came later, but it, that shake is often there somewhere. So Dr. Peter Levine, who I just previously mentioned, he has this really awesome story in his book called Waking the Tiger. And he talks about how um, mammals, like as human mammals, we have neocortices. So we have memory and we're able to project in the future. Trauma is hard on us because we have this mind that thinks. It's really different for animals. So he talks about how if an impala is grabbed by like a predator cat, like let's say a cheetah out in the wild, that's Cat, that, that impala will go into a freeze nervous system response. They're going to go into a dorsal vagal response. They are going to shut down. And this is kind of nature's way of protecting them from pain and making this not traumatic for them. So they just kind of shut down. They go all limp. They play dead. And the cheetah comes and throws it in the dead and, uh, den and assumes that it's going to be dinner later. But if that cheetah is not careful, that impala's nervous system is going to kind of reactivate back into sympathetic and it's going to 
get up and run away from the den. And when it's in a safe space, what is observed is that as the impala walks, it starts doing this really weird, shaky walk. So they do the same thing. They integrate the trauma of that experience or the hardness of that experience for them through this nervous system activation. And they downregulate what happens so that they don't have a nervous system injury that remains. Humans are fragile to, for that because of our thinking. And so we have a lot of unprocessed. And birth is one place where there's a lot of unprocessed stuff on a nervous system level. Yeah, through the cumulative experiences of our lives. Exactly. For sure. Yeah. So, Leslie, what can people looking, having sort of established what needs to happen for most people and understanding there's variations in normal and there's not one right way to do it, but usually the patterns that we see in terms of the nervous system um, and birth is a nervous system event. Yeah. What can people do to support those physiological needs within the context of a managed birth setting, which right, is most likely right. what they will experience? Yes. Um, it's actually, I, I find in my experience that if you're a birth supporter, a birth giver, a birth supporter, a birth partner, um, bringing this up, just talking about this physiologic nervous system uh, opportunity, checking in to see if this is something the birth giver wants. And then if they do, making it part of their birth preferences that maybe they're bringing to the hospital, that they ask for the room to be quiet. And that if the bed is broken, that maybe the partner or the care provider can just hold the baby against the thigh where it can stay warm, but give space for the birth giver to downregulate and take the baby at their time. That the room does not have, take your baby, oh my gosh, it's a boy, it's a girl, and have that sort of loud bustle. You can ask for quiet. It is very hard for a staff to maintain that quiet for a long time because they have a lot of things to do. But I have found that at least for a good minute or two after, there's been a lot of cool, like, like acquiescence to that. Just ask them for quiet. And there have been times where, I've, you know, I've had people who were of the Muslim religion and they said, actually, it's part of our tradition to have the father be the first person to say any words in the room. So, I mean, you could say that it is a spiritual belief. You could, that you just want, you know, the first words to the baby to be of, uh, from the parents. So asking for silence, as simple as that, can be really, really helpful. Um, that can be done in an operating room as well, so that the care providers just maybe have to whisper amongst each other but that the experience is they're not overwhelming the birth giver, that they're giving them space. Another thing that I've done is drawing from Gina Kirby's Rebozo work is I've created a privacy shield with my Rebozo. And this happened once in a case where birth was being very managed and we knew that the baby was going to have to be off the birth giver for, uh, for a little bit for some tests and things like that. So they were not going to get the baby on them right away. 
that doesn't mean the nervous system isn't going to downregulate. It still has to do that. So when that happened, the baby was taken. It just occurred to me to take my rebozo and throw it to the father. And the father intuitively threw it over himself and his partner. And they were just under there like a little tent together. So it was reducing visual stimulation because the room was bright. It had to be bright for medical reasons. And I could just see there was the second of silence. And then there was in the, the next wave of experience with shoulders dropping and then shoulders shaking and tears. I could see this happening through the outline. And then they started whispering together, oh my God, we had a baby. And really being able to experience that claiming of their parenthood together. And they did that all under a big old rebozo, which was, so nobody was saying that. And so a doctor literally asked me, what are they doing under there? And I channeled my energy in a Kirby. And I said, well, they're just hot pots oxytocin (laughs) (laughs) the whole room kind of they giggled but they have that privacy so you know they're depending on what is going on creating like little privacy shields for them and and just asking for quiet and it's not that we want to abandon our presence from the birth givers because sometimes they will look at you in the shaky shaky right with are we okay so this is where we want to engage the ventral vagal nerve you know with social engagement we look at them and we smile and we nod and we go this is amazing this is exactly what is supposed to happen and just go with it that supportive environment can help reflect back to them that they're safe and that they're well Mm -hmm. and when you were talking about putting the baby next to the thigh one of the things that i also that can be a a helpful position to help to, with this integration and giving parents the minute they need to lead their experience is um i see often when parents give birth in in a hands and knees position mm-hmm. because there's no chest to put baby on right? They actually have to turn around. I mean, there's a different kind of disturbance, but because they're trying to get the the birthing person to turn over so that they can put the baby on the chest. But in those situations, because you can't force anybody to do anything, when the birthing person needs a minute, I've seen it that they've stayed hands and knees for quite a while. And people are like, take your baby, take your baby. And they're like, or turn around. And they're like, "Mm, I'm just doing my thing right now I just need a moment I've seen this twice in a hospital in hands and knees positions and what the care provider did is they didn't ask the birth giver to turn around they actually just scooched the baby through from between the legs and up towards so the birth giver has enough of uh like a reflex to kind of make some room for the baby, but then they just sort of curl around the baby. And I've seen that in silence until the birth giver took the baby. So they don't actually necessarily need to turn around and mm-hmm. go on the chest. They, the baby can just sort of be scooched to arm level, like threaded through and um, it can be claimed when they're ready. And it's been so beautiful to witness this. Um, I'm always so happy when I see care providers really value that in a solid way, that experience for people. I, I think this needs to be a new emergence 
mm. in birth practices is to allow for the nervous system completion of birth for birth giver and for baby. Well, and to allow parents and, and birthing people to, birth givers to do what is coming naturally to them. Yes. Yeah, it's not because that everybody we're... is going to be different. Yeah, it's not that we're trying to set up a weird scenario. It's no, <laughs> we're trying to hold space for something that tends to happen on its own if you let it. Yeah, it totally does. I had somebody many years ago give birth on hands and knees in a bathroom, and uh, part of their coming down process was simply to grab their own baby walk with the baby attached onto the bed, lie down, and then they started, they kind of let the baby hang out on their belly a little bit. They took a little rest, and then they grabbed their own baby, and it was all good for them. So, you know, it's not that it has to look any 100% specific way, because I never want to lead people to go back into their undisturbed birth stories and think, oh, I did it wrong. When my fourth was born, my claiming of my baby was super fast. I, I was on hands and knees. And then I brought my leg up, as people often do, and I, I caught my own baby. And right away, I wanted to see what his sex was. And so I moved the cord aside, and I announced, it's a boy! And then I turned around with him, and then just lay with him on me for a little bit, um, you know, with the room quiet. So it's there's so many variations of the theme, and we just let the person direct it in their own way. Yeah, and take what they need. Take what they need and the support is there. You know, we have a supportive environment. They're not alone. They don't have to be afraid. There's, there's clinical support available if necessary. There's emotional support. There's nervous system regulation support available if the room is honoring this process. And you mentioned a little bit about cesareans. And I want to just, I know we're like, whew, we're going with this. this Time is a time is a construct. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but with cesareans, because that third stage is it's a completely different experience, right? Um, and usually it isn't that the birth giver gets to be fully reunited with their newborn until the recovery room and at that point they might still be groggy they might be shaking from other things like do you have any thoughts on that experience on how to it's a bit tougher yeah. because obviously in an operating room if we're there supporting in an OR we have a lot less say because it's a big deal like we have to let the doctors do their thing but um I do find and I'm sure you've seen this before you see this when a baby is being pulled out of the birth giver's body <clears throat> that, excuse me, that there's often this moment while they, they feel pressure and their heads go back. They go, ah, 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 like that. And their heads roll back. I feel like, oh, that's the, that's the birthing moment. So that happens for them on a certain amplitude as well. And it is very, very common for there to be massive amounts of shaking after a cesarean. Um, because of birth in and of itself, but also because the body is in a very delicate, crazy position where the person is awake and it's being explored. I think the nervous system has uh, is like, what the heck is going on with that? So I feel like there can be a lot of shaking. I will often see an anesthesiologist calm the shaking down with uh, with more drugs. And 
Now, maybe they have to do that because they need the person to not be shaking while they're doing surgery. So I, I can't really speak to that. But I just always try to create a warm bubble around somebody, an energetic bubble, and just let them be them, you know? Um, but sometimes that's all we can do. Sometimes it is just going to be a bit different from what the blueprint is. But I feel like if we are always just really grounded in our bodies and listening with our whole body, that whatever occurs to the birthing person to say or do to support themselves, we can just follow that. I always feel like the body is trying to maintain homeostasis. And so they will be doing some cues. Very often, I feel like a lot of my job in an OR is, you know, supporting somebody and vomiting with their head turned to the side. That's often a big part of it. That's also a nervous system response. And so we just do that as lovingly as possible because that is the valid way for the body to return. Mm-hmm. And I, we've got policies here where generally there's only one person allowed to, into the OR and that tends to be the, the partner, right? Mm-hmm. So the um, you, more often than not, doulas are not allowed to go into the into the OR, but then we have the options and the possibility to do some reconnecting and uh, right after in the in the right recovery after. room. Um, and coaching partners also before mm-hmm. they head off to become parents in that space where we're waiting for the birth giver to get their spinal anesthesia ready and for the room to be set up, we can offer the partner some words about how to hold that bubble, what to expect. It's going to be some shaking. Just hold the shaking. Just whisper, this shaking is okay. This shaking is this. Mm-hmm. And it'll be managed however it's managed medically. I don't think that we can say anything about that, but we no. can always just validate it. Well, and then, no, you can also, afterwards, if you so choose, create a recreation of the yep. of the moment to allow, yep. you know, who is it that says, just get in a warm bathtub with your newborn <laughs> and, and both of you are naked or in a bed. You don't have to be in the water and just... You know, just hang out. Just hang out just and hang out. Think about and it. And babies yeah. will show you. Babies will show you their own completion very mm-hmm. often. They'll be in one place. They'll show you their birth dynamics. Like they'll be in one place. They'll turn their head and then they'll cry and they'll have a big story. Let them do it, right? And then they'll turn around in other ways and they'll react. This is all their way of helping, you know, to release some of their cranial nerves and exercise their orienting impulses. I feel like on a nervous system level, birth is done for baby once they self-latch. Mm-hmm. So and recreate that, that self-latching. Yeah. Recreate self-latching. For baby on a nervous system level, yeah, that's when it tends to finish because that's when they're like orienting everything and they're doing their crawling thing and they're reconnecting to their uh, their their heart, right? And it doesn't have to necessarily, self-lash doesn't have to necessarily be the full-on breast crawl for a baby just to be lying, you know, in the crook of their parents' arms and it's kind of finding the nipple on themselves. It's, it's, it's uh, good for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Instead of, here, I'll take your breast and connect it to your baby's mouth. Maybe we don't want to do that so much. The, not, neither the baby nor the parent is learning anything if that's done that way. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no. 
Ah, Leslie, this has been such a fun, fabulous talk. Thank you so much for for My doing pleasure. this today. Yeah, if people thank you so much. Yeah, if people want to connect with you and and follow what you're doing or ask you more questions, how can they do that? Um, you can always uh, email me info at motherwit ca. Uh, my website is www.motherwit.ca. And I train doulas all over the place. I offer holistic birth doula training, holistic postpartum doula training. They're both four-day programs with a lot of extended stuff. Um, and I also teach a resilient doula training workshop. So this is for people who have experience, you know, supporting birth for a while and are realizing some of the hardships and the frustrations. And this is how to support what you've gone through and how to go forward in creating a practice that is sustainable for you on a nervous system level. Um, I know what it's like to burn out. Uh, I know what it's like to really struggle with my relationship to frustration with medical care. Um, but I also know how to be with it now in a way that's much more healing. So I have a lot to share about that. Mm-hmm. And I highly recommend your Resilient Doula Workshop because I have taken that We're one. We're going to be in Boston next weekend. Oh, yeah, excellent. I'll be in Boston next weekend. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, people, doulas, if you're interested, go check out more, more work, more information, more learning with Leslie. And, uh, yeah, thank you so very much. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Such an honor to be here. I love your work. You're doing such important work. Blessings on it. May it continue in great success and prosperity for you. Mighty Ones, find the in-depth show notes for this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about me, the show, send me messages, and more. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. Oh, and here's what Leslie had for breakfast. Oatmeal with coconut milk and cinnamon and cardamom and raspberries and maple syrup. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to a mighty parent as they share their amazing story here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so very much for listening. This episode is copyright 2020 by Adriana Lozada. Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous birthful library. Happy listening.